I think sustainability has been a, been an organizational or a corporate responsibility for a long time. Just look at all of the, we call them continuity plans in case of an emergency. But, you know, most organizations that, I, you know, that I know and I work with are looking beyond, say, quarterly returns. Um, again, while there are those market pressures, I think organizations recognize they want to be a going concern. I think I saw a statistic recently where, you know, a certain number of CEOs were wondering, you know, maybe the majority were wondering if their organizations were even going to be in existence in 10 to 15 years, given the rate of change. So I can tell you from what I see, that notion of uh, longevity and sustainability, maybe even outside of environmental uh, concerns is, is something that I'm hearing and seeing a lot of. And then of course, those organizations that wanna make environmental sustainability and cultivation of their workforce well-being part of their strategy, I think there's a, there's a great opportunity to, to do that now. Kia ora, welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Hi, Jeff. Long time no see. Uh, We find ourselves in pretty much the same position, although last time I was actually sitting in a cupboard, um, which was my uh, studio that I had set up for doing podcast recordings. And now I actually have a proper room with proper setup. So I'm slightly more comfortable than I was. So that's progress. Yeah, that's progress. That's progress. So I'm interested in um, how the last year has been for you in terms of some of those topics that we discussed at the la- on the last podcast, um, your work looking at kind of gig workers and how to really integrate them into the way organizations think about their workforce, but also their software. Can you give us a little summary of what you've seen and, and what you've been working on in the last year? Sure. So, so the vision that I had um, that I bought and had had bought into, uh, you know, was about bringing bringing non-employee workers to the forefront of employee experience, or raising their visibility and raising the investment we're making in non-employee workers. And the going hypothesis at the time was that things are, you know, things are very busy. We're having talent shortages. There's disruptive talent markets, and so I can say with confidence over the past year that that perspective, if not a hypothesis, has been validated, uh, in particular through through conversations with you know, HR uh, professionals, with procurement professionals, and their mutual desire to raise the visibility and raise the profile of non-employee workforces as a, as a fundamental part of, of, of organizational talent strategy. Um, a lot of the work that we've done, the research we've done in that area is you know, giving those workers a voice adding adding non-employee workers to strategic workforce uh, planning uh, activities and so i can say that that perspective and the you know kind of the things we talked about last year have been validated in terms of desire now we've had a number of you know disruptions we'll say or or bumps uh, in our in our global economy along the road i think when we spoke uh, you know when people were dying for talent i think that has has moved from maybe you know starving for talent to hungering for talent a little bit more because of some of the, the market shifts. But I also think that you know people have seen a different side of work, and there's plenty of people who've decided to go out on their own who are going to stay that way regardless of the economic situation. So all in all, progress 
uh, in many ways more so than expected. Um, and so just creating the vision and, 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 you know, creating the solutions is, some, you know, we've gone past proof of concept to actually rolling up our sleeves and getting it done. That sounds great. And it's always nice when you have a hypothesis that's uh, to some extent or fully validated, uh, you yes. feel like maybe you were right. You were right all along. Yes, yes. Of course, I knew I was right. The question, did the market know we were right at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to well, ask, there's, to there's lots of um, news coverage about these mass layoffs um, particularly in the States, but actually uh, I was looking the other day, it's the same in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so you know that it's a bit of a wave when it actually starts to hit, you know, the bottom of the hemisphere right the way over here. Um, yet at the same time, we're still hearing about talent shortages. Um, what's happening, do you think, in terms of the market where you have those two ends of the spectrum that seem so far apart? Yeah, you know, the, the layoffs always get a lot of attention uh, in the media and social media. And of course, it's very painful having been through one myself and having delivered more than one as an HR person. It's very difficult and on, on an individual level and it's very painful. So I, we don't want to lose sight of that. Um, and so a lot of times those individual stories get a lot of attention and there are people, you know, who are suddenly looking for work and through no fault of their own, you know, are now looking for employment. And so I'm going to start by acknowledging that. I also want to, you know, recognize, I think that there was, you know, we've heard this narrative about organizations, particularly the tech organizations, staffing up for growth. And so they ended up accumulating a lot of that talent. And then over the past year, as the, the macroeconomic environment has changed, um, as they've, they've responded, we'll say, to different pressures from investors, uh, they've they've you know gone on the route of layoffs. So there has have has been a lot of layoffs. Um, although I'm hearing and seeing that a lot of a lot of the people affected by these layoffs are able to find something before too long. I think we went from in December, maybe November, two jobs for every seeker in the US, and now it's 1.6 jobs for every seeker. So you know, it's still it's still a seller's market in terms of labor, particularly if you have the skills. But, you know, I think as with so much we're experiencing right now, the, the traditional models don't necessarily apply. And so, so yes, there's, there's overabundance of talent in some areas and underabundance in other areas. And the sweeping generalizations, you know, that we hear a lot of times don't necessarily tell the whole story. So I don't know if, that, if that's the answer. I, I do think that there's... there's um, Still some some right sizing, we'll say, that organizations are looking for. And again, some of that is responding to pressure and can be a little bit contagious in the public markets. Uh, on the other hand, I still think it's a tremendous opportunity and perhaps still one of the best markets for labor that we've experienced in generations. And do you think that translates into the opportunities for non-employee workers that uh, they the war for talent or whatever we want to call it gives them the opportunity to really hone in on their kind of niche value proposition uh, and provide organizations with that opportunity to not buy into an employee for a certain period of time, but to pick and choose the talent that they want when they want it. 
I think there, I think there's a desire there uh, on both sides of both, both on the, you know, the provider of skills and services or the employee side or the contract employee side, as well as the organization. Um, it's not as easy necessarily as just saying it's there, let's go for it. There are lots of assumptions and, and, you know, mechanics and a lot of times patterns of behavior that need to be addressed in particular, I think, while on the one hand, you know, enterprises are saying we have a desire for flexible talent and, a lot of the research I've seen suggests that that desire for non-employee workforces is going to continue to grow. On the other side of that, there's a question, what happens when non-employees are providing, you know, providing growth and providing value and creating knowledge that we hadn't thought of before? How do we capture that knowledge without, you know, in this, in this more transitional employment environment or when it's more transactional versus a career relationship? So that's one example of maybe I wouldn't even say a damper on, 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 on this idea, but it's one of the challenges that organizations are working to overcome as both sides of that labor equation are looking for more flexibility. And what about leadership? Because leading non-employee workers um, takes a different kind of mindset in terms of what they're there for, um, how do you lead them, and how do you lead them alongside your employee workers? Because most times leaders end up having a mixture, in my experience, and they tend to apply the same practices across the board. Um, what do you think about the leadership traits that are required to really maximize the benefit from that mixture? Yeah, one of the things we talk about a lot, and this is a great question, is inclusion and does you know, how can we increase inclusion in the non-employee workforces? And then, of course, a lot of the a lot of the folks that are that are um, focused on risk management or risk mitigation or risk elimination, depending on how you look at it, say, oh, you can't treat non-employees and employees the same way because we have co-employment, we have classification issues, which of course we do. And so, so there are practices um, that you can put into place to mitigate some of those risks, but at the end of the day, when you're sitting around on a Zoom call or in a conference room trying to get work done, day to day, it's, you know, you want to include and bring the best of whoever's in the room to the table for solving of the problem. So on that side, I think the best managers are going to get the best out of their people, regardless of what sort of employment arrangement they have, um, particularly if it's a, if it's a short project cycles or on project cycles. Um, they do have to be aware of some of these constraints, but it's not as restrictive as, as people might think uh, in terms of inclusion. And, and, and really what we're talking about in terms of inclusion is a recent study by Deloitte that says up to 70% of an employee's perception of inclusion is related to the manager and more specifically the manager's recognition of their own biases and attempts to mitigate those biases. So I don't think there needs to be a complete management overhaul. I think more importantly is managers need to recognize their biases um, in a broader sense with regards to different types of workers, with different types of backgrounds and try to incorporate, include those individuals into the work they're doing. We can set up systems and structures like very clear policies or tenure practices, um, make sure we're looking at um, you know, make sure we're looking at the, 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 the requirements for one type of employment or not. 
as someone comes on board and shouldn't necessarily have to be too much the responsibility of the manager with a few, you know, with a few, you know, broad principles in place. I'm really interested in this focus on inclusion um, because it has so many layers. Um, one area that I know has become uh, a real discussion point is the freedom that being a non-employee worker gives you if you um, have disabilities or certain health issues that mean that you are much more comfortable and able to participate remotely, particularly when, again, you have in the headlines these organisations saying we need everybody to come back into the office. Do you find that uh, in the non-employee workforce, one of the one of the attractions for people is that it enables them to really give their all professionally without having to negotiate all of those physical and physical location challenges that sometimes organizations just aren't willing to see or to negotiate on? I think without a doubt that this this growing acceptance and maybe there's a little bit of a backlash towards remote work has has made it easier for people with with we'll say alter alternative abilities um, I like that better than disabled but people with different different types of abilities can bring themselves you know the screen is in some ways very much an equalizer you don't have to necessarily you know make it to make it to a campus even though even though you know at this point, all, all campuses should have the appropriate design and accommodations. We know that they don't. Um, and it takes something, it takes, you know, it, it's a different challenge for different people to come to uh, an organization or to an in-person meeting. So to be clear, I value in-person connections and I feel like they're richer, um, but but is it required to be able to produce? No. And, and I think this, this greater, uh, this greater notion of not necessarily having to come into an office creates greater opportunities. But I would add that that's one facet in, in a broader effort towards inclusion. We're also seeing less reliance on degrees. Um, we're also seeing less reliance, quite frankly, on experience, as well as less reliance on geographical location for being able to engage somebody. And how do you think organizations are approaching questions of sustainability and regeneration, which sometimes go straight to, you know, environmental aspects, but are equally valid, I believe, in terms of workforce and talent and making sure that there is uh, well-being in your workforce, regardless of where you source that workforce from? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is one of those things that get the sustainability in particular, but also well-being is one of the things that gets a lot of attention in social media and media and sometimes um, is subject to hyperbole, depending on, you know, who's saying what just to get attention in, in that world. I think sustainability has been, a, been an organizational or a corporate responsibility for a long time. Just look at all of the, we call them continuity plans in case of an emergency but you know, most organizations that I, you know that I know and I work with are looking beyond, say, quarterly returns. Um, again, while there are those market pressures, I think organizations recognize they want to be a going concern. I think I saw a statistic recently where, you know, a certain number of CEOs were wondering, you know, maybe the majority were wondering if their organizations were even going to be in existence in ten to fifteen years, given the rate of change. So, I can tell you from what I see. That notion of uh, longevity and sustainability, maybe even outside of environmental, 
uh, concerns is, is something that I'm hearing and seeing a lot of. And then, of course, those organizations that want to make environmental sustainability and cultivation of their workforce well-being part of their strategy. I think there's a there's a great opportunity to, to do that now. And one of the drivers of that change and that pace of change, obviously, is the emerging technology and the use of generative AI. What are you seeing in terms of the challenges or the opportunities, particularly from a workforce and job perspective, with the the way that generative AI is going? You know, I think it's, it feels like this conversation is turning into the debunking hype conversation, perhaps a little bit. I think there's a lot of value to these generative AI tools if they're used and deployed appropriately. I've never been a big a big fan of you know the robot apocalypse uh, coming. I think that jobs will be displaced. I think some smartly and some by mistake. People wondering, you know, you know applying these generative technologies in inappropriate way. I'm a I'm a Chat GPT user. Um, but ChatGP doesn't do my work. ChatGPT is is something that helps me get started on an idea, or might give me some some initial, you know, initial concepts to further develop or to shape if I'm looking for a communication. I don't. Being able to predict words in a sequence is very different than being able to predict the meaning and application in real life. And my concern about generative AI in particular is that, in a rush for what people might call efficiency. They might rely on less than reliable sources and solutions to be able to do the work and end up with more mistakes than we had had anticipated. So I think it's a good tool. I think we should proceed with caution and with intention on what we're using them for and whether or not we believe the words that sound so eloquent on our to our ears or to our eyes, are they in fact true? Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of conversation to come, I think, in terms of how to use sensibly um, and how to use with efficacy. Um, I also am a bit of a chat GPT user, um, partly for my own amusement actually, to see what what information has been inputted and how it comes out. Um, But also because I think one of the responsibilities that we all have is to explore and learn rather than put our heads in the sand and hope that something's not going to happen um, or it's not going to be used in in different ways and perhaps non-constructive ways. I I agree with you 100%. We need to engage um, thoughtfully and intentionally because it, it, and I I would say it's improved my productivity on certain tasks as well because, you know, I don't have to generate, if I have an idea, when I finish a blog or I finish a paragraph or an email, it's mine. But having having a tool to generate the idea sometimes is helpful to get things going. And one last question, um, particularly about your style. So I'm interested in how you would describe your decision making style. Is there a context for that question or or like? Um, I well, I guess so. Decision making, I think, is quite personal. A personal thing and increasingly in the context of tools such as AI where it seems as if the answer can be produced by a machine my hypothesis is that decision making and our reflection 
and kind of understanding of our conscious decision making will become really, really important, even more so than it is now. I'd say it's critical now, but I think um, particularly for leaders and decision making, decision makers, understanding how they make decisions and being able to plug and play with new tools, but but not lose that sense of uh, their own biases, their own processes, their own reflection uh, is an area where we need to concentrate even more. And so what I'm doing is I'm asking people for their reflections on their style to kind of collect ideas uh, and to challenge my own thinking about what decision-making is. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And to answer, I would go back to the broader context. When I make a decision, you know, I, I work in an organization where we 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 constantly focus on business outcomes and objectives. And so one of the personal criteria that I run through when I'm making a work-related decision, is this going to help us achieve those outcomes that we've agreed upon um, or or that are going to advance our mission and vision? And so that's kind of the first the first step. It's hard to 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 convey all of the nuance around around those those outcomes uh, to something that might be automated. So when it comes to you know tools for making decisions, I've always seen data as a tool or as an input for decisions. Um, at some point, there needs to be a human making a decision when it affects human people. And I know that's a sweeping generalization, and probably someone come up with a thousand different uh, examples of where of where it's not, but, you know, let's say, let's go back to say, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think, I don't, I, I'm not a physician, so I'm not going to say into a medical, in like a medical context, but the evidence is pointing to this, like it's overwhelming that you need to make this decision. Then it's easier to make the decision necessary than if you have evidence that's split uh, in, in either ways. But I think just that example provides a sense of why I think there needs to be a human involved in decision-making, especially when it involves, uh, it involves people, you know, my, my gas tank could get low and the sensor on the gas tank, I'll use this one instead of medical sensor on the gas tank says, you need to go get gas, right? Because you're about to run out. I still need to make a decision to turn the car around and go in that direction, but that's pretty much an on and off decision. You're low, Here's data for you to make a decision on how you're going to spend your time. The decision isn't whether you need gas or not. The decision is whether what you're going to do with that information, if that makes sense. So I, I believe that in a, in a human environment, we can automate uh, a lot of processes, but when there is time for a judgment, the data should flag, flag you know, here, here's what the data, the data is saying, here's an indication that you need to make a decision. What's your decision? But it's really like it's hard to answer that question in, in you know in a few minutes when there are so many different contexts which you can certainly automate and speed up uh, decision making with the use of uh, you know analytics data and, and maybe even generative AI. Great, thank you. Uh, that has given me some things to think about actually in terms of decision making because how I hear you talking is not about the decision itself, it's about the action that comes from the decision. And that's where that interface between humans really, really is important going forward. Um, and so that's a new slant on, you know, what is a decision? A decision is not deciding. A decision is is deciding and putting something into action. That's how I look at it. Yes. 
Great. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. I know that it's been a little while since we spoke and I always had the idea that we would catch up again for what I'm calling a postscript moment. Um, it's only taken a year. We're finally here. Hopefully it won't take a whole another year for the next one. I uh, look forward to it. Thanks for catching up. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website. Thank you.